Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Thank you, Cindy. Well, good morning, church. I'll be looking at that passage in a moment, so keep your place there in 1 Peter. You know, there was this man uh, who flew into Chicago and hired a taxi to take him downtown. And as he was riding along, they came to a red light, and the taxi driver went right on through the red lights. The man said, hey, that light was red. You're supposed to stop. The driver said, yeah, I know, but my brother does it all the time. Well, soon they came to a second red light, and again, he went right straight through. And the passenger said, you're going to get us killed. That light was red. Why didn't you stop? Taxi driver said, don't worry about it. My brother does it all the time. They came to a green light, and he stopped. The man said, the light's green. Now's the time to go. Why don't you go on through? And the taxi driver answered, I know it's green, but you never know when my brother might be coming through. <laughs> you know, it seems like that the world around us these days is going through red lights and stomping on green. We live in times when evil is called good and good is called evil and right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't be making it up as we go. We need a standard to go by. We come to a section this morning that speaks to our code of living. The verses that Cindy read for us provide us ethical instructions for living life as followers of Jesus. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 this morning. Join me in prayer as we dig into this passage here. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that's breathed out from you. That God, what we listen to today is not what I can put together, but what the Spirit of God guides us in, and that is your truth. And so, Lord, we invite you in. Speak to us. Guide us. Have your way in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been around the last few weeks, so you know we began a sermon series on living on hope. 
And if we are to live on hope, as we saw in our first week, it will require we intentionally attach our hope to something worthwhile, like forever, or we attach our hope to Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, living life on hope is to face the reality and variety of grief, knowing that trials are necessary in our lives to push us to greater dependence on God. And Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who saw the risen Christ, so he's called an apostle, turns to the ethical ramifications of living on hope. And so the passage we're focusing on this this morning points us to right living in an upside-down world. Right living in an upside-down world. And now it's in verse 13, and I hope your eyes go to that verse, we find a dramatic shift from stating facts, first 12 verses, to now giving commands. We come to the first commands in this letter. And what's written in these verses that we're looking at is not disconnected to what went before them. That's obvious by the first word in verse 13. It says, therefore, therefore, and if you've been around Scripture for any length of time, you know what to do with a therefore. We are to ask, what is it there for? Well, Peter has just taken 12 verses to celebrate salvation. A salvation that Old Testament writers could only dream about and angels could only long for experientially. Yet we have it. We have this salvation. And since we have this glorious salvation, we are to live in such a way that reflects what it is we have been given. In other words, in light of this amazing salvation, verses 1 through 12, therefore... With privilege comes responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. You see, we are to align our lifestyles to properly reflect what God has done in our hearts. Now let me say that again. It's really our bottom line for this morning. We are to align our lifestyles to properly reflect what it is God has done in our hearts. And so the question then becomes, does our mindset, our attitude, reflect what has happened in our lives? Does our behavior reflect what God has done inside you and inside me? Perhaps the the biggest question we can ask this morning is, is your salvation a lifestyle? Is it a lifestyle? Because we have been given life eternal life. We have been set free. We have liberty. Life, liberty, what then should be our pursuit? Living a life of holiness. How do we live in holiness in an unholy world? Leonard Ravenhill put it this way, he said, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy person out of an unholy world and make that person holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Greatest miracle God can do today is take an unholy person out of an unholy world, make that person holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. That's where Peter now turns his attention. If we're to live in holiness and an unholy world, 
First of all, it means we need to be mentally prepared for the daily grinds. We need to be mentally prepared for the daily grinds. All right, verse 13, after the therefore, he says this one phrase we're going to stop and camp on a little bit. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now, several uh, Bibles translate that phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> gird up? Loins? What in the world does that mean? Well, it's actually an accurate translation. We just don't use that phrase. Uh, I doubt you used it at all this week. To gird up your loins, though, is a picture of those in an ancient Near East who wore garments which were like robes. And they would be this long and, and, and flowing robes from the shoulders all the way down to the floor. And often they were made of wool and they were quite heavy. And as such, they offered protection from the elements. However, because of their size and flowing dress-like nature, these garments were not very well suited for activities which required some movements. If you don't think that's true, just watch the bridesmaids at the next wedding you attend and try to run at that bouquet or even dance, right? They kind of have to lift it up a little bit in order to move around. It's good for standing around, just not for doing anything. So to speak of girding up your loins here, stay with me, is what people in ancient Near East would do if they had to move quickly, if they had to move rapidly. They didn't want their robe just flying all over the place. So when it came time to, to move in a hurry, they would take the corners of their robe, pull them up through some kind of belt or sash, turning it into a, a mini robe of sorts so they could move quickly. See, turn your robes into running shorts is kind of the idea. Now, one example of this is found in Exodus chapter 12, when God told his people, as they were preparing to leave Egypt and eating the Passover, that they need to be ready to go. They need to be ready to leave. Moments notice, this is what you need to do. And so in verse 11, God says to them, now you'll eat in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet. In other words, be ready to move, be ready to go. Don't let anything hold you down. Now Peter applies this to our minds being prepared for action. That mental preparation is essential for living out your faith this week. How prepared are you mentally for living out this week? Living out your faith this week? Living out in holiness? Mark Schlereth played in the NFL for 12 seasons and uh, is a football analyst. He was at the time, least of this, uh, of this interview, for Fox Sports. And a few years ago, when Tom Brady was still playing for the Patriots, during a panel discussion on Fox's First Things First, the host asked him, how remarkable is Tom Brady's run? And he said, it's incredible. Brady, Brady's not sated by success. I think that's the most impressive thing to me, to continue to prepare, to continue to grind. Brady's, uh, as Brady puts it, if you want to beat me, you better be ready to lose your life because I've already given up mine. Now, Brady's former backup quarterback said the thing that he learned most from Tom Brady is playing quarterback is not just a job. It's a lifestyle. And you got to be willing to commit your life to it. 
And to be able to commit your life to playing the game the way he has played it, this backup quarterback said, and to have that much passion for it without ever being sated by it. And he goes on, he says, he wakes up and it's all about what I'm going to do today to be the best quarterback I can be for this organization. That means diet, that means exercise, that means hydration, that means a lot of things. And he goes on to say, lock in here, and Sundays aren't the problem. Monday through Saturday, that's the problem. And you get to a point somewhere in your career in which you say, I don't want to prepare anymore. If I could just show up on Sundays, that would be great. But I don't want to go through the grind of preparing to get to Sunday. And he says, Brady still eats that grind for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. Church, that's for football. Are you mentally prepared for the daily grind? Today isn't the problem. Right now, being in church, this isn't the issue. The test of it will come Monday through Saturday. It isn't Sunday that gets us, right? It's the grind of Monday through Saturday. And if our salvation is to be a lifestyle, if we are to live our lives in holiness, we must be mentally prepared for the daily grind or it will eat us up. How do we do that? Well, several ways, I suppose, but we need to fill our minds with truth because there's a lot of lies out there. Mentally prepared for it? We need, to, we need to train our minds to think in what Paul says in, in Philippians 4 and what is true and what is noble and what is right and what is pure, and what is excellent, what is admirable, what is praiseworthy. Think on these things. Because what we set our minds on determines our decisions. And that's why Peter speaks of gaining control of our minds. The next phrase there, he says, be self-controlled. Or some translate, translate this phrase, be sober. It's a good, it's a good t- translation, be sober. And this phrase, be sober, has more to do with our thinking than physical drunkenness, though, though, though that's forbidden in other places. But the idea here, being sober-minded and self-controlled, is having a calm, clear head. It's to judge things according to what is right, not what the world calls right. It suggests we don't allow our minds to wander into mental intoxication with the things of this world. It's the idea of being steady in your thinking. Your thinking is not to be all over the place. You're not to go to the extremes. And that's why Peter speaks of the need for self-control because a disciplined mind sets its attention and keeps its focus on the goal. What is the goal here? Peter brings his readers back to what this book's all about, living on hope. Look at the end of verse 13. And this is the main verb in this verse. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's where our minds need to be at. Hoping in God's grace. And not only hoping, but hoping fully, it says. Hope fully. Do you hope fully or will you consider yourself yourself a moderate hoper? I mean, honestly, we're kind of satisfied with a half-hoping heart. Because we get so engulfed in the world that we're half-hopers. We secretly hope Jesus doesn't show up for a while. 
Jesus shows up, it's going to be an intrusion into our lives. And so we struggle to have our hearts set on hope fully. Set your hope fully. All right, so what does a prepared mind look like? A settled hope. See, we're not, to, we're not those who live without hope. We have a fixed hope. We're to reflect that hope to others around you. They ought to see that we are people who do not lose hope in the midst of all the craziness going on. And I ask myself, do they see that in me? How do we do this in a world that's constantly attacking that hope? Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. We must steadily resolve to fix our minds on this hope. So we ought to let nothing come into our minds that would desensitize us to hoping fully in the grace of God. See, the battle for hope begins in the mind. Conversion is a mind-altering uh, decision. Do you, need, do you need a little mental adjustment this morning? Anything that's numbing your mind to the things of God? Peter now shifts gears slightly from a mindset and attitude that reflects our salvation to our behavior. If we're to live in holiness in an unholy world, secondly, we are to conform our behavior to his standard. We are to conform our behavior to his standard. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, conform, of course, means to be shaped or molded. You used to be, before you came to Christ, molded and controlled by desires that were out of order. But we should not act like we used to. We're not to act like an unbeliever. See, in this verse right here, verse 14, there's this contrast between a life with God and a life without God. A life with God is one who does not conform. You don't simply go along with what everyone else is doing and live thoughtlessly and irresponsibly. I find it interesting that what the unbelieving world often accuses Christians of is that they don't think that they've abandoned reason, that they're not rational people, that they've checked their brains at the door. No, actually the opposite is true, or it ought to be. The world consists today of non-thinkers, right? The very ones who are accusing Christians of being non-thinkers don't want to think for themselves. Tell me how I'm to think. Tell me what I'm supposed to conform to. Tell me what I'm supposed to tolerate and not tolerate. Think for me. That's the world. And that's ignorance. See, life without God is thoughtless. A holy life is always thinking about how we integrate our belief into our lives. Church, don't live, don't live a life of ignorance. Don't go back to that life. Continue to think about how to integrate your faith into holy living. And not just when others are watching. Like the teenager who went for his driver's license. As he drove around with the license examiner, he did everything perfectly. He parallel parked as he ought to. He went to complete stops. He obeyed the speed limit. 
And the examiner said he made his only mistake when he finished the test, pulled back into the DMV parking lot and let me out. After breathing a sigh of relief, the boy exclaimed, I'm sure glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. (laughs) I think he probably failed. Sadly, that's how too many Christ followers live. When others are watching, they appear holy, but the rest of the time, they let down their standards. We, we get done with the church, we breathe a sigh of relief, say, I'm glad I don't have to live like that all the time. If we're honest. But obedience characterizes your life. Obedience is to be your pattern. Now notice it doesn't say as obedient slaves, or as obedient people, or as obedient servants, but obedient children. Obedience of children is different than the obedience of a servant or a slave or an employee. An employee uh, at work is motivated mostly by a paycheck and keeping his job. Children don't obey to keep their parents. Parents keeping their children doesn't depend on their obedience. Even if you threaten them, if you keep doing this, I'm sending you off to an orphanage. No, we really don't do that. See, the fact that your parents have you is the reason for your obedience. There was a school-age boy who found himself in a little peer pressure to do something wrong. But he refused to go along with his friends. And so they they began to taunt this little boy and saying, oh, you're no fun or you're just a coward. And one boy said, I know, I know what it is. He's just afraid that if he does this, his father will hurt him. And the boy answered, no, I'm not afraid that my father will hurt me. I'm just afraid that if I do this, I'll hurt my father. See, as children, we don't want to hurt God. We don't want to offend our father. As children of God, we want our lives to reflect what God, our Father, has done in our lives. And so Peter says in verse 15, follow along with me now. Verse 15, he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Now get this, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy when you feel like it. Be holy when others around you are holy. Be holy when you're treated fairly. Be holy when you're in church or or be holy when things are going well for you. Be holy by looking holy on the outside. No, God says be holy in all you do. Holiness is a lifestyle. Now, ask others around you what it means to be holy and you'll get a bunch of different answers. Some think of it as uh, as some monk-like existence in which we completely separate ourselves from the world, have nothing to do with the world, just isolate ourselves, live in this bubble. No, it's not it. Some use the word holy to refer to someone who's holier than thou, meaning they're condescending and and self-righteous. Oh, you're just so holy, right? That's how they often use it. Holiness to some means this checklist were to follow and certain activities were not to do. Now, the Pharisees had all the rules and externals down, mostly. But they were far from holy. Outside of the cup was clean, Jesus said, but not the inside. See, holiness isn't this external submission. You know, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Holiness 
isn't simply getting all the rules right. Holiness is not merely listening to Christian music during the week. Holiness is not coming to church every Sunday. Holiness is not having your devotions each day. Holiness is not only watching Christian movies. Those may be helpful in pointing you in the right direction or keeping you on track, that's fine. But holiness is what is woven into our actions throughout the day. When that person cuts me off in traffic, when I have every reason to complain, when entertained by some gossip, when tempted to act on impulse, when, when, when my heart gets kind of anxious, when, when sinned against, you see, we are to be holy in all that we do. Holiness is a lifestyle. Holy in the morning, afternoon, evening. Give me Jesus all day long. That's what we're striving for. Holy of every moment, every decision, every thought, every word, every response, every deed. And you know what? We have cheapened We have cheapened the meaning of holiness by shrinking it down to a list of do's and don'ts and focused on outward behaviors. We have. We've cheapened it. You don't do the things, then then you're, you're holy. If you do these things, then you are really holy. And if you walk away from this morning to merely work on the externals, you have missed the point. Holy actions ought to flow out of what? Holy attitudes, the desire within to submit to a higher authority. It's to, begin, it's to align our lifestyles to properly reflect the Christ we serve. And others are not the standard. Jesus is. God is. And that's what Peter points to next. Look at verse 16. For it is written. Now let me just stop here for a minute because Peter, he reaches back to the book of Leviticus. Now when was the last time you opened up that book of the Bible? The message is clear in Leviticus, right? It's all about holiness. The word holy is used over 150 times in the book of Leviticus. And I believe we struggle with Leviticus in part because we struggle to see how beautiful holiness is. Waiting until marriage is beautiful. Treating others kindly is beautiful. Faithfulness is beautiful. Reconciliation is beautiful. Turning the other cheek is beautiful. Why? Because the God who made us knows what is best. And when he says, wait, wait. When he says, be truthful, be truthful. When he says, flee, flee. When he says, strive for unity, strive for unity. When he says, let go of that hurt, let go of that hurt. When he says, release that earthly possession, release it. For it is written, he continues, verse 16, be holy as I am holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. We, God, it, 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 God's holiness is the basis of our holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse right here is one of the most intimidating verses in Scripture. Holy as God is holy? Do I have a chance? Well, holiness, when it speaks of God, means like, that he's like no other. He is other God. He is transcendently above all creatures, everything that he's made. He's not like anything we can imagine. God is in a class by himself. He is holy. When holy is applied to us, It means that we're set apart, we're separated unto God. To be holy is to be set apart for God's intended use and purpose. It's really sanctification. 
Because when we were saved, we were declared holy by a gracious God. We must continually remind ourselves daily of our holy calling. So set apart to him each day our passions and our attitudes and our motivations and our eyes and our ears and our lips. Is there anything you're tolerating that shouldn't be there? A college with an established football team wanted a mascot, so they decided to get a goat. Two students wanted to keep the goat in their room. The head of the dorm floor got wind of this and approached the two students and said, well, I hear you're going to keep the goat in your room. What about the smell? He asked the two boys, and one of the students replied, oh, the goat will get used to it. (laughs) Kind of reversed it. You know, there's some things we get used to that God doesn't. You know, we're interested in heaven often, but not holiness. We're interested perhaps in health, but not holiness. We're interested in happiness, not holiness. We may even be interested in helpfulness, but to what degree are we interested in holiness? Listen, we serve a holy God. Let's aim for His standard. And if we're to live in holiness in an unholy world, we must have the right motivation. My third point this morning, ultimate motivation for a lifestyle of holiness is found in these next few verses. Ultimate motivation for a lifestyle of holiness. Holiness. Paul, Peter here speaks of a healthy fear. What have as strangers living in this world? Look at verse 17. He says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, we'll come back to the idea of living as strangers here later on in 1 Peter. There's really a lot here in verse 17 I'm just not going to get to. But do see that we see two things here of a father, God the father and God the judge. They kind of go together. And that God's not going to judge us by favoritism or compare us maybe to other people. But Peter here provides us with some motivation for holy living in a holy world. It's to live with an awareness that we will stand before God someday and give an account for how our lifestyles reflected what we were given. But it's a fear that doesn't drive us from God, but towards Him. But our ultimate motivation is in the next verse. Our ultimate motivation for a lifestyle of holiness is wrapped up right here, really in a three, one three-letter word there, the beginning of verse 18, for. For. Here's our motivation for living a lifestyle of holiness. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. Why live a holy life? Why give yourselves fully to him? Because he gave himself fully for you. By the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed and declared not guilty. Christ's blood alone paid the price of our redemption. It's the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect that set us free. Christ gave his life as a ransom, meaning he purchased our freedom by his shed blood. We have been set free. 
Set free from what? Well, a lot of things, but in this verse, he speaks of the empty way of life. We have been set free from the empty way of life. We have been redeemed out of the futility of life to a life with meaning and purpose. See, without the gospel, apart from Christ, everybody lives looking for some meaning in life. It's a life of futility and emptiness. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. That sums it up. Thomas Oden puts it this way. Everybody has to live for something. Everybody has to have central, some central value that's the basis on which we make decisions. It could be attractiveness. It could be approval of people. It could be power. It could be anything. But everybody has to have something you live for. What are you living for? You need to answer that. What are you living for? Because that's what's going to be your motivation behind everything you do this week. You can check that out and see if it really is. But Odin goes on to say, you can either make God your central value, which is an infinite center, or you can put something finite in the center. To the degree, he says, I center my life on a finite value instead of God. To that degree, I relate to my past with guilt and to my future with anxiety. I mean, he says a mouthful there. I mean, just let this sink in. Test it, actually. Test it. What is it the, th- what is it the thing you are living for? To what degree is the thing you're living for giving you anxiety? I mean, if you're living, uh, the thing you're living for is money, then consider the degree you're experiencing anxiety around that. The thing you're living for is some political party, or, or it's living for your children, or you're living for some approval or applause of others, then you will be experiencing anxiety around that, because it's finite. Church, you have been set free from all worldly forms of validation. Can we embrace that? Your identity is not in your career success. My identity is not being a pastor. Your identity is not being better than someone else. Your identity is not having this ability or that ability. Your identity is not even in your rule keeping. Your value is in him. That means there are no mundane mundane moments in your life. It all has meaning. Your life matters. Because of Jesus, and that gives motivation for holiness as a lifestyle that's better and more fulfilling and sustainable than any other motivation. It's life-giving. It's liberating. It really is. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Is that your pursuit? Is your salvation a lifestyle? Now, does being holy mean that you're, you are perfectly obedient? If so, we're all in trouble. If so, we can never be holy. But it does mean that we're submitted to God to let Him run all areas of our lives. It's to go to God and say, this heart, this body, this life, this house is all yours, Lord, not mine. Matt Chandler Came home one night and found his son in the living room playing a game on his Xbox instead of cleaning his room as he was supposed to do. And after asking his son to clean his room, Chandler says this. 
After a pause, my son went to clean his room and started on his other main household chore, vacuuming the house. As I left to start unloading the dishwasher, I heard him turn on the vacuum for about 45 seconds. My son Reed found me and happily reported, I'm done. I mean, I just said to him, you, you vacuumed the whole house? Uh-huh. Son, Superman could not vacuum this whole house in 45 seconds. <laughs> I did. I did, Dad. So I, Chandler says, I, I grabbed his hand and said, okay, let's just walk around the house and see. We walked around the house and over in this one corner, we found a, an entire bag of goldfish crackers that looked like someone had intentionally dumped them on the floor and danced on them. I said, son, did you, did you vacuum this? Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it. Okay, but it's on the floor. You're supposed to vacuum the floor. I mean, I don't know how you missed it. And so Chandler says, we walked around the house and I showed him other obvious things he failed to see. Church, that's what God does with us. That's what this holiness thing is all about. He takes us around the house of our heart. And he says, hey, Brian, you, you see these goldfish over here? You need, to, you need to clean that up. You see this over here? You need to clean that. This smell, can you get rid of this smell? Let's get this cleaned up. And the beautiful thing is, God says, and I'm going to help you get that cleaned up. He doesn't say, try harder, go. He says, we'll clean it up. Just invite me in to all the rooms of your heart. Holiness to live continually under the eyes of God, letting him, letting him clean up those places we didn't even know were dirty. Will you invite him in to do that? That's the pursuit of holiness. Let's pray.